Hi, this is Melinda Snodgrass. You're listening to Women at Warp. It was really difficult on a weekly basis for the audience to see what Jordy saw. In fact, we never really successfully did it in, in the seven years that we did Next Generation. In fact, the audience has never seen, in any of the movies, the audience has never seen what Jordy sees. Jordy sees all of the electromagnetic spectrum. That means he sees everything from infrared to x-ray. Jordy sees sound. Okay? Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jarrah, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have crew members Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi, everybody. We also have a very special guest, Carrie. And um, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and maybe tell us a bit about why, how you first got into Star Trek. Yeah, sure. So... As you mentioned, my name is Carrie. I've loved Star Trek since early high school. I started with Voyager because I was particularly inspired by the strong female role models. I loved Janeway. I'm also planning to get my PhD in sociology. And so because of that and my analytical nature, Star Trek has always been a very deep well for me to dip into in terms of having interesting things to analyze. Awesome. So today we are going to talk about disability and ableism in Star Trek. But before we get into that, we just have a couple housekeeping things. So first of all, just want to remind you about our Women at Warp Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com slash women at warp, you can pledge a small amount and support our work. It helps us get out to conventions and print materials and things so we can spread the word. It pays for our website hosting and equipment and things like that. So um, thanks to everyone who's supporting us already. And if you'd like to support us, you can head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And Sue, do you want to tell our listeners about our convention schedule for the next little while? Absolutely. So this coming week is Star Trek Las Vegas, and all four regular Women at Warp hosts will be there. We will be having a meetup during the convention. Uh, there, at the time of this recording, is not a set date, time, or location yet, but it will be on convention grounds, however, outside of the space where you need a ticket. So if you're going to be in the area but you don't have a ticket for the con, you can still come to the meetup. And for more updated information on that, please check our event on Facebook. You can get there from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash women at work. Uh, after Star Trek Las Vegas, I personally will also be at uh, Dragon Con and New York Comic Con. And does anybody else have... Oh, and uh, Grace and Andy will be at Geek Girl Con. Woo! Very exciting. And I totally forgot about Cherry Hill. I will also be at 50-year mission Cherry Hill. <laughs> with Amy. With Amy Imhoff, who is has been on the show two or before. three times? Uh, just once before, but oh, she okay. will, she'll be on again soon uh, when we talk about uh, Born With Teeth. Yeah, we're putting together a panel. Right now it's still a panel proposal for um, New York Comic Con, and we are inviting back uh, Anjali Grochet from Black Girl Nerds to join us on that as well. Awesome. So um, let's get into our topic today. There's a lot to cover. We might not be able to cover every single episode um, that relates to this topic, but we're going to hit some of the key ones. Um, and like I said, the, the topic is disability and ableism in Star Trek. And this is a topic that actually was proposed by Carrie. So I'm super excited um, to have you on to chat about it. We thought that we would start off with talking about some kind of concepts when we're talking about disability and ableism for people who aren't really as familiar with sociology. The first one that I wanted to bring up was um, this 
there's sort of a couple different ways of thinking about and talking about disability. And the traditional one is referred to in sociological terms as the medical model, which basically sees the person who has a disability as like a problem to be fixed and that the problem lies within them. Whereas the social model of disability, which is preferred by a lot of disability activists, is about seeing how a person is disabled by their environment. So it it isn't necessarily something about them, but it's about how the environment fails to accommodate their needs. Um, is that would you say that's fairly accurate or do you have anything to add to that, Carrie? Yes, I'd say that's a, a very good summary. I think that also transitions very nicely into one of my favorite sociologists, Irving Goffman. Woo! He has a, a book that is also one of my favorite books called Stigma, the Management of Spoiled Identity. And one of the things that he talks about is how when you have a handicap, especially when it's physically obvious, say you have a cane or a wheelchair like I do, you stand out. You have a physical stigma that tends to make people feel uncomfortable because of that otherness. Because you're seen as the cause of that discomfort, there's an expectation that it's your responsibility to make people feel comfortable again. So Goffman says that common expectations are that those stigmatized have a sense of humor and joke about their handicaps, that they gratefully accept assistance from people even when it's condescending and downright unhelpful. And that they assume the role of this pitiable, dehumanized, martyr-like inspiration. They're never dejected about their condition. They're just, oh, they're so brave. And so it's really interesting because Goffman talks about how these stigmatized, handicapped individuals have to negotiate their interaction with the world, not only in a physical sense, but also in a social sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I think we'll definitely touch on some episodes that uh, get to this this issue. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, I just want to interject that we decided in advance that we would be dealing mostly in this episode with physical disability. And we will be focusing on an episode on mental illness at a future date. (laughs) Because there is so much to talk about. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on, uh, physical disability issues. And we're gonna go sort of chronologically and start out with Captain Pike in the cage slash the menagerie. So, Andy, do you feel like you could maybe give us a, a summary of this one just super quickly? So basically, the menagerie, Spock takes over everything to remind us that there is a, the former captain of the Enterprise, Captain Pike, who is now in a wheelchair that does amazing things like blink and light up. <laughs> the Menagerie is an envelope show that enabled them to show the pilot the cage again. But basically, in this story, he is so severely disabled that he they request to send him back to Talos 4, which is a planet that there's a death penalty on people from the Federation going there. Uh, this is where the Talosians live and make you basically live illusions. And so the end is result is that he gets to live an illusion where he is young, handsome, and able-bodied, um, along with Vina, this woman there, who um, is de- sort of deformed through being reconstructed after a terrible accident by these aliens who didn't understand how humans work so that together they can live the life of like perfect fully able to walk 
human Which is beings. obviously preferable to real life, in which, you know, they could actually live the life of human beings. <laughs> obviously. It's apparently preferable to death, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since, since the penalty for returning to Telos 4 is death. It's the only remaining death penalty in the galaxy, which they make a huge point of making sure we understand. So yep. for, for Christopher Pike, although to his credit, he says no the entire time that they're going. He does not want to go. Um, and, and Spock pulls an I know better for you. Oh. I know what's best for you and takes him anyway. But the, the implication is that disability is worse than death because even if they get the death penalty pike would they they want to risk it so that he can live this this life this illusion instead and the thing that's really frustrating is that they portray it as a a preferable alternative to this miserable life that he's living right now but the thing is his life doesn't need to be as miserable as it as it is right now they have this machine for him to make these beeps, and the only thing that they've taught him is yes and no. And <laughs> I was pulling my hair the entire time saying, why did they not teach him Morse code? Because <laughs> they they make a point of saying it many times. A direct quote is, his mind is as active as yours or mine, but he's trapped inside a useless vegetative body. They say many times that he hasn't lost any kind of mental capacity. So... Not only, I mean, at the very least, they should teach him Morse more code just to mentally <laughs> stimulate him. Because at the moment, he, he was just put in a room with a camera. There was no kind of mental engagement. All he could do was stare at a wall. That's horrible. And then going further, I don't think that the Universal Translator should have any issue with translating that to for people that don't actively know Morse code. So that means that he can either stay as a captain in an advisory capacity, which I imagine he would want to because Starfleet officers are workaholics, or at the very least, he can retire with that increased functionality. And that description that they give over and over again about being trapped inside his body reminded me of uh, ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is what Stephen Hawking has. And Mm -hmm. he has a more advanced... Uh, system than what is even depicted in this episode and he has it now and he's had it for for several years and it's kind of disappointing that they couldn't even the writers of of the menagerie couldn't even imagine a a system where this this medical device has been improved over the years that he's just in this black box and the only thing it does is be yes I feel like, and others can disagree with me, but I feel like this is basically the low point for representation of people with disabilities in Star Trek. It's pretty disappointing that, um, like you pointed out, that um, it falls into this um, better dead than disabled trope that like life would be so awful to be confined to the chair and doesn't address like really simple things that could have been done to help make his life better. I think Vina's even more disappointing because she's not actually like she doesn't actually have a physical disability like she has some some mobility issues but for the most part like she could live a completely normal life 
But she's ugly, Andy. Exactly. <laughs> that may as well be a disability for women, that's, obviously. That's the implication is, like, she's not actually ha- disabled. She's just not, no longer beautiful. And so then the message being that she'd be better off on this planet rather than, you know, not be hot anymore. It's really disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, any other thoughts on the menagerie? I mean, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this now, but um, we can talk about how Captain Pike is treated definitely differently in the JJ-verse. He uh, starts out... He gets no. injured in 2009. Yeah, so he gets injured in 2009, and he ends up in, like, the floating wheelchair at the end. But he's still being pushed by someone. Yeah, that's true. Um, I read a few articles, and they generally were arguing that this portrayal was still like better because he was still seen as heroic but then um i read a a blog by uh, an author who uh, refers to themselves as space crip and says that you know pike is murdered by khan in a terrorist attack on starfleet in the first act of the film so this is into darkness after the initial explosion pike tries to drag himself out of the line of fire but the combination of his impairment his injuries and not having his cane leaves him struggling on the floor until spock carries him to semi-safety he dies soon after but not before spock performs a non-consensual mind meld on pike perhaps trying to comfort him in his dying moments a la stark from farscape the telepathic contact gives spock insight into human emotion and enables him to empathize with people facing death so i guess like what this writer is saying is it, it, in a way, it's kind of like fridging. Um, it's sh- uh, referred to as the bury your disabled trope, which is kind of like bury your gaze, basically like they're inconvenient characters to have around, so you kill them off. But in this case, it's a bit like fridging that Spock and Kirk are the ones whose characters benefit from Pike's death, and so that's his purpose for dying in. Well, you mean their stories benefit. Yes, yeah. Well, we need Kirk to face his, you know, face his mortality and have pain he needs to lose another father figure to push him towards you know doing heroic things exactly and i think that's pretty common to see in terms of the portrayal of disabled people is they tend to be used as as a prop for able-bodied people to be able to learn something or to Mm. be able to get at a point they're not a fully human character they're just a means to an end So, for example, going back to the Menagerie, Pike had no agency. He was saying no, 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 no the whole time that they were going there, but it was still very, well, I'm Spock and I know better than you, and that ultimately was what they ended up with. Imagine only being able to say two words and having them ignored. I can't even. That would be horrible. Having that, 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 communication barrier and then even when you're able to clearly communicate what you want it's still going to be disregarded because obviously you are not in the same physical capacity that everyone else is so we're just going to disregard your mental capacity that's also something that's very common which Mm. i want to talk about later with melora another episode in tos that deals with disability is is there in truth no beauty but we are planning on doing a recap episode where we look very specifically at that episode and the character of dr miranda jones so we're going to pass it over for the sake of this episode but promise we will discuss it in future and we'll go right into the next generation and a really early episode called loud as a whisper 
Sue, or do you, are you able to recap this one? Sure. This is a second season episode where there are two warring factions that have been on this planet, and they've been warring for so many generations that it's no longer about whatever the dispute was originally about, and it's about being at war. And they have both factions have agreed to bring in this mediator called Riva, and when the Enterprise goes to pick him up, they learn that he is deaf. And instead of communicating with a sign language that he apparently knows, he communicates with a essentially a chorus. And there are three members of this chorus, each representing, you know, a different part of his personality, who sort of read his thoughts and interpret them to the people around him. And yeah, they, they in the course of the episode, uh, meet an unfortunate end, so the crew needs to find a new way to interact with and communicate with Reva. Yeah. Carrie, did you have any thoughts on this episode? Yeah, so something that I actually really liked about this episode had more to do with Jordy, because when Reva and Jordy first meet, he's really interested in Jordy's visor, because... Riva has his way of adapting to his disability and Jordy has his. And Riva asks something along the lines of, don't you get angry or frustrated at this device that you're using? And Jordy says, well, both my blindness and my visor are a part of me and I really like who I am. So there's no reason to resent either one. And I thought that was really beautiful because of how simply he describes his feelings. And it goes against that expectation of that martyr-like role where it's just this suffering victim. And he's saying, listen, this is who I am and I got to carry on with my life the best I can. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked that scene as well. I also liked how in this episode, it's a bit of a romance for Troy episode. Like he's he's uh, Riva is portrayed as a bit of a love interest and he's kind of hitting on her. I appreciated that because another issue that people with disabilities face is uh, like an unwillingness to see them as people with sexualities. So it was nice to see that like such an early example that he comes in as a person who is not really, he's not portrayed as disadvantaged. He's a very clearly very intelligent person and he's a, a person who has commands a lot of respect and he's a person who has a sexuality. So that was kind of cool. We did have a listener comment from Matthias. Andy, do you want to read that one? As a child of deaf parents, I found the way they portrayed Riva a bit silly. Instead of the gimmicky chorus, he could have just communicated with Troy or Data in sign language. It feels like they wanted to have a deaf character but didn't want to explore the deaf condition. It reminds me of when I was younger and store clerks wanted to speak through me and my sister instead of directly to my parents. Big props to them for casting a deaf actor for a deaf character, though. That's still a problem to this day. Directors will say that deaf actors can't be directed properly, which is BS. See Marley Matlin in The West Wing and Shoshana Stern in Jericho. Which, if you haven't seen Shoshana Stern in Jericho, you should. Yeah, for sure. She's awesome in it. Yeah, Riva, when the Enterprise crew starts addressing the chorus instead of Riva, he does, I guess, say through that they need to remember to address him directly. So I think that's dealt with a little bit, but I, I certainly understand the point in this comment. But there, there are two other things that are a little bit disappointing for me in this episode, even though I do like it overall, and that is... That in this very same episode where Jordy says he's happy with himself, he's talking to Pulaski, who says that she can replicate him new eyes. And we see him considering it, and then eventually turning it down. But I 
felt like that was maybe a little bit unnecessary. But also, after the chorus dies and Picard is trying to communicate with Riva, he does the age-old practice of yelling <laughs> and talking slower. Of course. <laughs> oh, and no. that doesn't help. If someone's brain cannot receive auditory information, talking louder and slower is not going to make a difference. Yep. Overall, well, though, yeah. I really like Riva's confidence, and I really For like sure. the way... That he interacts with everyone with a certain, I don't know, calm confidence that I, I enjoy. And I think for the most part, the crew interacts with him respectfully, which is nice. Yeah, and at the end of the day, they basically decide that the way to bring these two warring factions together is that Reva's going to teach them all sign language because you know, you have to be able to listen and hear them uh, metaphorically before you can negotiate peace with them. So I thought that was kind of a cool message. Yeah, overall, I actually really liked the episode because of many of the reasons that were mentioned. I didn't actually think about the sexuality one, so I, I did actually really appreciate the the fact that you brought up the sexuality. And I also very much appreciate, I also forgot about the part where he stands up for himself and says, hey, listen, you talk to me, my chorus is just here to, to speak for me, because that's something that I've encountered on a regular basis. If I'm being pushed in a wheelchair... People will ask questions about me to the person pushing me in the wheelchair, like with me right there. So that's, yeah, I, I do remember being like, stand up for yourself, Reva. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so another episode that we will do a full episode on at some point is The Loss. So we don't have to cover it in as great a de detail right now. But um, I'll open it up to thoughts. And I also wanted to share a quote from Erin Hawley. She has an awesome blog called The Geeky Gimp. And I, um, I'm i going to share links in our show notes to two live chats that she's held with a lot of other awesome people commenting on how Star Trek has portrayed disability. So the loss is the one where Troy loses her empathic senses and basically freaks out. And we talked about it a little bit in our women of TNG episode. So Erin Hawley says, I'm glad that the show debunked the myth that blind slash deaf people have superhuman senses, but it lost all credibility once Troy said, I am disabled. How can she feel indignant about something she doesn't truly understand? Let's humor the show for a minute and say she is disabled. Has it really been long enough for her to feel so oppressed anyway? A day if that has passed. This takes the experiences of people with disabilities and cheapens it to some sound bites that are supposed to be thought-provoking social commentary. Well, I think she really sums it up quite nicely. I think that's a very good summary. That's a frustrating episode. I, I think that it's pretty problematic for her to basically be like, I can't even work in Starfleet anymore after only a day of dealing with this. It doesn't really do justice to the, the strong, resilient Troy that we see in later seasons. And Picard's comments about, like, her, you know, becoming inspirational are just, Ugh. it's kind of condescending. Yep. Then that's very much related to something that I mentioned before with Goffman, that if you have this handicap, you lose your humanity, you become an idea. Mm -hmm. You have to act in a certain way so that normals, quote unquote, are inspired by you and how brave you are. Yeah. Instead of just you being a person that something kind of shitty happened to. Yeah, and it, it, it like takes away your ability to legitimately express that you don't feel good that day. 
Because, exactly. like you said, it's always about, like, how other people feel around you instead of how you feel. And if you don't feel good enough, then you're not supposed to express that. I think that's perfect. Yes. So anything else on the loss? I think that at the very least, if they were going to attempt something like this, it should have happened on Beta Z. Mm, that would make sense. The planet. Yeah. Because when you see Loxana... Whenever she's around, she always speaks telepathically with her daughter. So we can assume that that's how it is usually going to be on their home planet. If you at least put them in a situation where it's comparable to an actual disability, as opposed to keeping her in a situation where she has her full faculties, she can still walk around, she can still communicate, you know, she can still do her job. It, it's, it, it cheapens both her as a character and the resilience that we have been led to believe she has. And it also cheapens the idea of actual disability. Yeah. And it cheapens any coping she does because by the end of the episode, she has her abilities back. Exactly. It's one of the problems that I think Star Trek has with examining disabilities is that the basic kind of formula with Star Trek is there's this problem but it needs to be wrapped up nicely in an episode or maybe it's a two-part episode. But it needs to be wrapped up. And that's just not the nature of disabilities. It's it's a long process and that's uncomfortable because there's not a way to, to tie it up nicely. So there are these episodes where they kind of try to get at disabilities, but they cheapen it by wrapping it up all nicely. We actually had a listener comment from Lori on Facebook who said, the issue of disability should have been explored in whole story arcs, but was often crammed into a single show. Dorn could have done some great work and uh, she's referring to the episode Ethics, which we're going to talk about next. Had we followed Worf's recovery for the rest of the season, the desire to address disability was there in Trek, but never truly realized. So I think that's fairly accurate. I think that's completely true. If we had had story arcs to examine it where it was a long drawn out process, I think that would have been much better than trying to sort of brush it under the rug and say, okay, the disability's gone now. We can go back to normal Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. So shall we move on to ethics? And does anyone want to summarize that one? Worf gets hit by a bunch of crates and becomes paralyzed and decides that being paralyzed would be so horrible to him as a Klingon and so dishonorable that he would prefer death. So he asks Riker to help him commit suicide. The same time, there's a doctor that specializes in neurology on the ship and has an idea of a new experimental treatment that might be able to completely cure him, but it could also kill him. And she and Crusher have an ethical disagreement over whether or not they should attempt the treatment yeah so carrie what are your thoughts on ethics this episode is actually i feel a little bit torn about it as someone that has a disability but also someone that's a sociologist at heart and so i i usually i I try to respect other cultures and things like that so on the one hand the way that they have Worf immediately jump to saying well i can't walk around and fight so my life is over and i may as well die is a bit extreme. On the other hand, the way that they present it seems reasonable in the context of being a Klingon. It it makes sense that a race that is focused on physical prowess and having honor on the battlefield would feel that all of their worth is tied to their physical abilities. I think, honestly, my main problem 
what the episode ended up being was Riker because he was the the main one that had an issue with Worf committing ritual suicide. But rather than saying, listen, I know this is your culture. I know this is the way that you have been raised, but you have worth beyond this. These are the ways that you still have worth and and you should continue to live. He could have said that, but instead he said, basically, your culture is bad and you should feel bad. It was It was basically a direct attack on his culture rather than saying, listen, you're my friend and I want you to live. I think you're valuable. And so it it ended up mostly bothering me because Riker portrayed Worf's responsibility as putting Riker's feelings before his feelings, where, where it's going back to it's the disabled person's responsibility to carry everyone else's emotional baggage. I see that. I also, though feel like Riker and Troy are the two that are reminding Worf that he has responsibilities outside of himself, specifically to Alexander. And I really felt like that needed to be said, because that was the first thing I thought. I was like, really? You're going to commit suicide and leave your kid an orphan? Like, mmm. But I, I definitely think that that scene could have been handled differently and in a more respectful way. That probably would have resonated better in the end. The thing that I had the most issue with was actually Picard, who is being like the voice of the prime directive and cultural relativism. But I feel like Worf throughout the season, you know, there are series, there are episodes where they're like, he's a Klingon, he's a Klingon. And there's episodes where it's like, but he's also a Starfleet officer. And I thought Picard was being extremely inflexible and really dismissive of Dr. Crusher's very reasonable concerns. And for someone that did grow up among humans, as much as we see him have such, you know, an affinity with an identification with Klingon culture, it did strike me as odd that he would basically not be able to see even a 60% regain in mobility as a victory and not be able to see that there is honor and courage in living in a situation that's been dealt to you like that. Absolutely. I'll get out of the way right here that I love the Crusher storyline in this episode. That's not what we're talking about. It's the Wharf storyline that is really the, the problematic one. And the thing is, of when you take a closer look at Klingon culture, you can't really unpack it. A society in which literally everyone is a warrior wouldn't last. It would fall right. apart. But I guess if you are a Klingon warrior, you have this honor and whatever. But you're absolutely right, Jared, that there is an honor in, in overcoming this injury that you've had and in staying to raise your son. And it's once again, we've got Worf wanting to take this risk to regain mobility, implying that death, which is a very real possibility, is a better option for him than disability. And there's actually a quote from the writer, Evan Carlos Summers, who is the writer of Melora, about the episode Ethics. And he said, That episode had gotten a little under my skin. Even though Worf is an alien and it's just a TV show, everyone knows we're making statements with Star Trek. Messages and values are being broadcast loud and clear. I resented the message in Ethics that Worf is worthless now that he's disabled and therefore must kill himself. I'm sorry that the portrayal had to exist at all. You know, I actually think that the Crusher storyline is important to what we're talking about because you have two very different doctors who are approaching this injury in very different ways. And, 
you know, people with disabilities, well, people in general, but especially people with chronic disabilities have to deal with doctors all the time. And you can have a good doctor that's going to help you live the best possible life for yourself. And you can have doctors who are not going to help you on that journey. And the medical profession can veer wildly with how respectful they are to the disabled. So I actually think the Crusher storyline is worth discussing in regards to disability and ableism because we do have this other doctor. I'm sorry, I forget her name. Toby Russell. Okay. She seems to be excited to have found someone that is willing to risk death for her treatment. Like, she's been trying to get this treatment on other people and, and nobody else would sign off on the risks. But then she has this Klingon who thinks death is better. Like, it's like the jackpot for her. I actually covered ethics with, uh, Brandon Matala for, from there to here on, on the Trek FM network. And what we wound up talking about is that Crusher is in this to take care of Worf. She wants the best for him, and she wants to do everything that she can to to help him and to help him recover and live a long and fulfilling life, right? And then you've got Dr. Russell, whose biggest goal in the end is a medical breakthrough so that she can get praise and laurels and write up her, her quote, research in medical journals. And it's two different aspects of medicine. There's caretaking and there's research. But there's also two different applications here of actually dealing with the patient who's in front of you and trying to do something maybe long term that could be a game changer. The other thing is, too, is that Crusher was never going to bring the option to Worf. And I understand why, but I also feel like he should have been able to choose that for himself. And in the end, the only reason he did is because Dr. Russell took the initiative to tell him about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's, you know, wanting to do what's best for your patient. But today, and hopefully in the 21st century, there's the idea of informed consent. And you can't fully consent to a medical treatment without being informed of all your options. Yeah, and to me that was a little bit of Crusher deciding for Worf what was best for him without actually discussing all of his, the possibilities. I have to disagree with you a little bit there because this what Toby Russell wants to do is an untested, unproven thing, right? Because medical treatments have to go through testing and review before they're valid treatments. And her decision is to not bring something to him that is totally untested and has never been tried before. And in my opinion, that's legitimate. It's not like he's in a drug trial, you know? So, I don't know. I, f- I feel like that is a, a valid decision, but I also see your point in that Worf, the way he's behaving, is sort of doing this last-ditch effort. Yeah, and I feel like it's a valid decision, too, and a responsible one. It's just, it's interesting to me because if we're talking about treating Worf, Worf specifically, not any other patient that, like, I would not have done that surgery. I would have gone for the safer 60% mobility one, you know? But I'm not Worf. Worf is a risk taker. Worf cares more about, you know, completely recovering or death is, like, basically what he wants. So, like, if you're tailoring your approach to the patient, you know what I mean? So, that's actually one of the strengths of this episode is I don't think that that's an easy answer. And I'm not a huge fan of Dr. Russell's kind of casual disregard for life. Not a fan of that. But 
in this particular case, I think they did set up an ethical dilemma for us that's actually very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Erin Hawley has a, another quote on ethics, which uh, she actually viewed fairly positively. But particularly, she says, love the ending. It shows how Worf learned that needing help isn't a dishonorable thing, and he can trust his son to give him that help. I doubt he would have been so open-minded right away if he didn't go through with the surgery and it remained paralyzed. But it does give me hope that he would have come around eventually. So, you know, she's talking about how she also felt conflicted because just the very idea of saying like, well, you have a disability, so you might want to contemplate suicide is like pretty scary, but ultimately really liked the ending. And I, I agree. I think it's a really touching scene where he lets Alexander see him not fully able to walk and actually help him and says like, we're going to do this together. I think it's uh, shows him being a good role model. And it's just, it's a pretty cool, powerful scene. It's definitely a arc in which Worf learns because we have in the beginning he won't even let Alexander see him and then he'll let Alexander see him but he's trying to make it look like he's fine and then asking getting very angry and asking him to leave as soon as he falls down and not wanting Alexander to see him falling and then at the end of the episode you have him going through his physical therapy allowing Alexander to be there and witness his struggle and help him with it so that's a, a very definite character arc that you can see really clearly. Absolutely. So we have one more single episode to discuss, and then we're going to go back to Next Generation and talk about the most prominent character with a disability in Star Trek, who's Jordi LaForge. But before we do that, let's uh, check in on Deep Space Nine and the episode Melora, which we already briefly touched on. But uh, Sue, do you feel okay giving that a brief go for a summary? Yeah, sure. Jara, I feel like we just talked about this. We did. (laughs) (laughs) On from there to here. Melora is an ensign in Starfleet, and she comes from a planet that has lower gravity than, I guess, the rest of the humanoids in the galaxy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But what that means is that she, her muscles do not have the strength to support her in what we would call 1G, one, you know, normal, quote unquote, gravity environment. Sorry, I went a little Sue Science Corner for a second. We (laughs) always love Sue Science Corner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, that means that in order to work and function in in Starfleet, that she is in a wheelchair. And she arrives on Deep Space Nine to do some experiments in the Gamma Quadrant. And yeah, that, I mean, that, that takes us into it. The thing about this episode is it was, as, as I mentioned earlier, it was sort of written in a reaction to ethics by um, a writer who, who has a disability. Uh, as a response to to this whole Worf storyline. Uh, but in general, I think this is a really good episode, but I also think that there are, are some problems with it. Yeah, Carrie, do you want to take a stab at the the problems <laughs> or, or good things about it? I mean, I think a lot of the comments I've read from people have been mixed on it that it has some some really good things going for it and some things that maybe could have been done better like all episodes <laughs> yep. but yeah what are your thoughts i have a definite love hate relationship with this episode i love it because it shows the truly frustrating things about living with a handicap it shows them in a very very stark way the thing that I hate about the episode is that it doesn't really realize that that's what it's doing. It portrays those frustrating things as justified and correct, and it portrays Melora's frustration to her mistreatment and her reaction to that as incorrect. 
So, for example, one of the things that I noticed in the episode right away was she's in this wheelchair puttering around. And as she's passing people, people are turning and stopping and staring at her. This is a space hub where all of these aliens are coming here and there. They see all kinds of weird things on the station all the time. But then a person in a wheelchair, that's just too much. Got to stop your day and stare at them. And probably the most frustrating part. So I I loved it because I was like, yes, that's a perfect representation of what it's like. Uh, But then how they handled it, I, I really didn't like. So they were talking about her mission. She was going to go on some sort of mapping mission something like that in the gamma quadrant and so it was julian dax and the captain were talking about talking about her and well can she handle it maybe someone to go with her and then she comes in and they were like oh well we were just talking about you and if you could handle your mission and she said don't you think that's maybe a conversation i should have been a part of and they gave her a lot of flack for reacting that way and being defensive and saying hey i don't need a medical opinion to know what i'm capable of which was really really frustrating because they were being really rude they she was fully capable of doing her job she not only made it into starfleet which we've seen in various episodes is an incredible feat but she made it through starfleet she graduated and she she has this this officer rank but they're still treating her as an incapable person they still won't trust her when she says yeah i can handle this yeah absolutely i i feel like this episode is an exact another example of something that could have been explored with more nuance if it had not just been a one-off character that needed to be gone by the end of the episode for example you know the this whole idea that she needs to have an attitude adjustment whereas like the characters on Deep Space Nine, with the exception of Bashir, who tries to understand her partly because he's interested in sleeping with her. Yep. But she's really the one who needs to change at the end of the day, even though Evan Carlos Summers wrote this to create a story where uh, a person with a disability is offered a medical cure and chooses not to take it as uh, sort of like Jordi LaForge, like saying, um, I am who I am. I like who I am. Um, I don't need to be like other people. So it has that message, but then there's this kind of muddling by the fact that the conflict is created by her responding to other people, not really treating her like a full person. She's she's not making the effort to make them extra comfortable, and it seems like they misconstrue that as well. Exactly. And, you know, it... For me, the, it starts right when she arrives on the station, and the the chair that they give her is not the one she requested, and she comments about it, and they, like... They, they kind of act like she's being ungrateful. Yeah, and it's just... Right. They're not listening. If you have good intentions, and you really want to help, then listen to what someone tells you they need. This scene essentially plays out as, we want to help you. Okay, great. Here's what I need. That's not what you need. This is better. But that's not what I asked for. Well, you're ungrateful. So when Sue and I talked about this on From There to Here, a few people commented that, you know, they thought that Melora was actually overreacting to the way that they were treating her. And we've talked about so far on the show, while we maybe don't so much agree with that, that, you know, it's by whose opinion. Like, if you're being treated that way all the time, it, it kind of adds up and it becomes... 
easier for you to just like cut to the chase and be super blunt about like, this is what I need. You're not listening to me. I find that really rude. And that's okay. But just say, for example, that her response is out of proportion with what would be considered reasonable. Just like, just to entertain that idea. I feel like what's really disappointing is that I feel like the default response for a Starfleet officer should always be, I just met this person. They come from a totally different planet and culture that I have never encountered. They've had a life experience that I have never encountered. And I'm going to operate by giving them the benefit of the doubt until I know them better, instead of right away jumping to, well, they're not meeting, like, human standards of politeness. Right. Excellent point. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I I will say that I do really like the scene where um, she's able to use her unique abilities to end up winning the fight in the runabout. Uh, and she also gets to have a sex life as well. So that's another example of a, a person with a disability. In this case, um, like a much more visible disability than Riva having an active romantic and sexual life in Star Trek. So that's very cool. About the rudeness aspect of it, from the way that the actress is playing it, it seems like it's a, it takes a lot of energy for her to just move around. So like mm -hmm. she's often out of breath, she often has a pained look on her face. To me, it seems to me that she, just in a general course of a day, is expending a lot of energy just to do basic tasks. That would make me tired. And when I'm tired, mm -hmm. I'm grumpier. Yeah. I'm less likely to, <laughs> I guess, accommodate other people's feelings. And I don't think that I'm alone there. I think that all of us have that problem. Jared and I get hangry quite often. <laughs> okay. So like people get that way even when they don't have physical disabilities. Imagine what that would be like every day, all day, having to deal with not only people's reaction to you, but your own, you know, exhaustion with trying to move around and, you know, any pain you might have. Like maybe you wouldn't be cheery all the time. I think that's okay. I think it's really interesting that if you think about it, the condition, I guess, that Melora has, that she is in an environment that has higher gravity than she's used to, is actually something that I think everybody can imagine. Because if you think about when you're in a plane that takes off and you feel that additional pressure right at takeoff, that's an, an additional G-force. Or if you're in any kind of like amusement park ride, that pushes you down and makes it hard to move, that's additional G-force. Or just imagine that you're getting by your entire day scuba diving. Right. <laughs> but Melora is moving and is, is operating in that kind of environment with that kind of pressure on her entire body at all times. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I think that this episode in is a good opportunity to talk to some people about what it is like to live with a disability. And it doesn't innately have uh, a causal effect on your mood, but I think it's totally understandable that someone who is dealing with those issues might come across as a little brusque at first, and that in Starfleet, your default assumption shouldn't be they have an issue. Your default position should be, I'm not making assumptions because this person comes from such a dramatically different experience. 
I think it's a really good point. Because especially as Starfleet officers, they should have that experience with being accepting of other cultures. I, that's something that I hadn't considered. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that if, if people are interested in the novels they, and haven't already, they should check out the Titan novels. Melora, uh, spoilers for the novels. Da, da, da. Um, Melora <laughs> becomes the head of astrometrics on Riker's ship post-Nemesis. And part of the condition with her taking the assignment is that they allow her to at least partially lower the gravity in the astrometrics lab so that she's more comfortable and also obviously in her own quarters. But there's interesting storylines about how she fits in with the the other people on the ship, how she tries different things, sort of like the interface that Jordy has an interface to interact with people on the ship without actually leaving her lower gravity environment and things like that. So um, it's cool. I, I definitely enjoyed getting to read more about her as an ongoing character in those books. Apparently also one of the original concepts was that, like for the series, was that this situation where a character comes from a lower gravity environment was originally considered for Dax so mm. to be a regular character. Um, but it was determined that, I guess, especially with the shape-shifting also happening on Deep Space Nine, that the continued low-gravity scenes would be too much for the budget. Hmm. I do really, really appreciate that Melora showed up as a character in the novels because that was also one of the things that I found really disappointing about this episode was, like we talked about previously, they sort of, they, they tried to touch on disability, but they tried to cover too much in a single episode and then just kind of shove her under the rug and never talk about her again. So I was really disappointed that she never showed up again. She had decided that she wanted to live this life without that medical inter intervention since it wouldn't allow her to ever return home. But then we we didn't get to see in the series how that translated to her actual work. So I very much appreciate that they did explore her character in the novels. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've been talking for a while and we need to get to arguably the most important character with a disability in Star Trek, certainly the most visible regular, which is Jordi LaForge from Star Trek The Next Generation. So does anyone want to start with how they feel like Jordi was portrayed or any particular highlights or lowlights they wanted to talk about? We mentioned briefly the scene in Loud as a Whisper. I'll just briefly say another scene that is similar to that that I liked is in the Masterpiece Society, where he tells off these eugenicists, you know, he can't really get behind them because in their society, he wouldn't even exist. And he knows he's someone who, who is has an existence that's worthwhile. There's a similar scene with Romulans, I think. The enemy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great episode in general. I like that episode. For one thing, Jordy is like action hero in it. But one thing that I like about it is the Romulans, the Romulan actually takes the time to tell him that they wouldn't have allowed him to live in their society. He's like, thanks, bro. And then <laughs> later on, it's his visor that saves them. So yeah. I, I really like that kind of message there that, no, Jordy is not exactly like everybody else, but he has strengths outside of that. Absolutely. And I think it was a really cool idea of Gene Roddenberry's to start him off as the navigator to be the blind man flying the ship. But uh, obviously, he got changed out of that role. But then he still has an incredibly important role. And he's shown to be very competent and adept at engineering. I also really like the scene in I'm trying to think it, it's a Klingon episode, I think, where they connect his visor to the view screen on the bridge and Picard's like, 
completely geeking oh. out. Heart of Glory? Yeah, Heart of Glory, I think, a season one episode, I think, where they find this Klingon ship and Jordy's on and Picard is just like really wowed by how different it is to see things through Jordy's visor. I just think it's cool that they literally let people see through his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's something that I really liked about him as a character is that they had several episodes where he not only just functioned adequately, but he was actually a unique asset where he could see some sort of radiation that they wouldn't have been able to see normally, or they were able to adapt his visor in some uh, some unique way to solve a problem. So there were several situations where if they hadn't had him around and they hadn't had him with his unique abilities, they would have been in a much tighter situation. Yeah, like I was just watching Interface, which is the one where he is attached to a probe and he thinks he finds his dead mother. In that case, the alien that is masquerading as as his mother had been trying to contact this other ship, but it ended up accidentally killing everyone on the ship. But because Jordy is interfaced through his visor in this special suit, he's able to actually end up communicating with this creature and end up saving them. So that was pretty cool, I thought. Yeah, Jordy maintains this, I like myself, the visor is part of me, this is who I am uh, mentality through the series, but then it gets a little convoluted in the movies. He does at some point get the ocular implants, which are essentially still the visor. They're just, they just look like eyes, I guess, to remove the obvious othering, which is something we can talk about. But then in Insurrection, his eyes generate because of the radiation on that planet, but apparently after they leave the Baku world and the radiation dissipates, he has to have the ocular implants again, and it it gets a little strange and confusing at times, but he definitely has this whole scene in Insurrection about the sunrise. how he'll never see the sunset or the sunrise again. But he saw it before. I mean, visible light is one thing. I would love to see a sunset through Jordy's eyes in infrared and ultraviolet and see what's going on in the other and then the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah, that actually reminds me of, um, I don't know if you have seen Battlestar Galactica, but uh, it makes me think of one of the Cylons later on. He talks about how he's so frustrated that he was made with this fleshy body and how he saw this supernova and he saw it with these ridiculous gelatinous orbs in his <laughs> skull, and he doesn't want to see it that way. He wants to, he wants to hear uh, radiation. He wants to, he wants to do all these these really interesting things that he normally would be able to do if he were a machine. And and how this more human body that he had was he co- he considered completely inferior. That's what I immediately thought of with you talking about that. Is yeah, a sunset would be way more interesting with a visor. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least like different and should be fascinating from a Starfleet perspective. I think we can add Jordy to the list of characters that had very strange and regressive characterization in the movies, as well as Data and Picard. But um, I think, you know, Jordy occasionally in the show, and I mean, in Generations as well, he does also become a victim that needs to be rescued because of his visor. Not all, all the time. I don't think it's the overwhelming trait. But, you know, there's, uh, well, in Generations, he's captured and then the visor is used to spy on the crew. And there's certainly other episodes where he's 
put at a disadvantage because his visor falls off or his visor is used against him. And I think that that's an aspect where, so I, I really, I love Jody as a character and I love that he is portrayed as someone that isn't just like his, his life isn't pathetic and pitiable because he has this disability. But on the other hand, I feel like he sort of gets into this zone where he's sort of the disabled version of a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> where, I mean, just because a disabled person doesn't want to be seen as broken, incapable, and someone to pity, that doesn't mean that they're not occasionally going to say to themselves, this sucks, I'm not having a good time with this. Mm -hmm. And I think especially in episodes where he's made to be completely helpless, where he's made to be a victim, I think it would be appropriate to have some sort of follow-up episode to give him that humanity to show that he's not just here to make all of the people without handicaps feel comfortable and be like, eh, he's fine, he's cool with it. Like, no, he. there are going to be days, I'm sure, that he doesn't feel good. In the episode I, that we mentioned previously, I think it was Loud as a Whisper, mm -hmm. where Pulaski said, hey, I can give you these more normal looking eyes. He, he and her talk about how he has headaches every single day. So not only is there this disabling factor, but there's also the presence of constant pain. So there are going to be days that he's not going to be having a good time. There were episodes with Picard say where he was when when he was assimilated to the into the borg and he had to deal with the the emotional ramifications of that in future episodes i think it would be appropriate for there to be follow-up episodes at least one after he's put in a victimizing situation where he says yo troy i'm feeling pretty bad about this right now that wasn't fun. Yeah. Well, I feel like the portrayal of Jordy tends to be that he's someone who isn't very good at expressing emotions. He, you know, we obviously see him as in some questionable romantic situations. <laughs> yep. And in, in Interface, he is upset with Picard for forcing him to see Troy when they think that his mother might be dead. But I think that it's positive that he's shown to have those different traits and they aren't anything. It's not like because he has a disability. He ha he's like this. It's just because he's a person and people have different personality traits. I do like that. I just think it's important that he's there. Absolutely. And he's there in nearly every episode so that, you know, a character being competent, being an engineer, having skills that are required to run the flagship of the Federation it's normalizing. Yeah, well, I mean, it shows, you know, he's part of a team of people who are our heroes. And the color of his skin and the fact that he wears a visor in order to see don't make him any less of a part of this group of heroes. And that's pretty cool. It's important representation matters. And uh, it's important to see someone who's a person with disability and also a person of color in this really key role on the ship who's an intelligent scientist and engineer and trusted by his fellow crew members. I completely agree. I think that even though he is not a perfect representation, I think that the fact that he's he's a frequent main character and he's frequently very positive, I think that's very important and much better than 
a lot of shows can say. We have a comment from Amber. Do you want to read that before we close out the episode? Absolutely. She wrote, I'm only really an expert on TNG, but I find the treatment of disabilities on TNG to be similar to issues like sexuality, race, and gender at all. Well-intentioned, but clumsy. For people like me who grew up without a lot of first-hand experience with things like deafness or blindness, episodes like the one with Reva were interesting and eye-opening. But now I watch it and I think, is that really the best way they could have done that? I'm also annoyed that for all of Jordy's speeches about how he likes his visor because it's a part of him, he went and got eye implants anyway. Yeah. I think overall, maybe the Trek series, and especially since we're talking mostly about TOST and GGS9, are products of their time in the sense that the people creating the show were likely looking on the the future, right, as, as Gene Roddenberry's vision of... There mm-hmm. will be no sickness. There will be no hunger. There will be no greed. And looking, unfortunately, upon disabilities as something to be cured. And I feel like it has been really since Star Trek in general has been off the air that the movement of, I don't need a cure. This isn't something that needs to be fixed. I'm not broken has really become more prevalent. So I wonder what, you know, the new series will do in hopefully tackling disability and ableism. Because hopefully it will be more inclusive and less, we need to fix this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well put. And just like, just to be clear, when we're talking about like the medical model of disability, this isn't, it's not about saying, you know, someone with a disability shouldn't seek medical treatment or medical assistance for certainly having a relationship with a doctor who treats you like a knowledgeable human being about your own needs is awesome. But the thing is that society needs to stop seeing this as an individual problem with like, if only we could just fix that one person and start looking at what can we do holistically to make our environment better for people with disabilities to live in, both in terms of how we relate in terms of not putting all the burden on people with disabilities to make everyone else comfortable, but also in terms of like physical structures and other types of assistance to make content and spaces accessible. So we're going to be transcribing this episode um, (laughs) as one like very, very, very small thing that we can do. And yeah. Awesome. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carrie. Where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on YouTube just by looking up my name. And I also have an Etsy store called Stitches and Stoneware where I sell things like nerdy plushies. Awesome. And we will put the links to those on our show notes, as well as links to other articles that we referenced, um, including the awesome panel series by the Geeky Gimp on Star Trek and disability. Uh, Andy, where can people find you on the internet? Easiest place is Twitter at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my first time through Star Trek. And Sue? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor, that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, or over at AnomalyPodcast.com. Also the main host of Sue Science Corner. <laughs> Sue Science Corner! <laughs> and I'm Jara, and you can find me on Tumblr at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com and on Twitter at Jara Penguin. That's J A R R A H Penguin. If you'd like to contact our show or check out those aforementioned show notes, you can visit womenatwarp.com. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com or visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at womenatwarp or leave us an iTunes review. So thanks for listening.